should we speak to Bill Carter, who's a name, image, and likeness consultant, analyst, educator, and speaker. Bill runs studentathleteinsights.com and is an NIL columnist for Sports Business Journal. He also teaches NIL in college sports at the University of Vermont's Grossman School of Business, and he runs MBA courses in NIL too. So listen in as I ask Bill about his journey to NIL consulting and analysis, what the future holds for college athletes monetizing their names, images, and likenesses, and what the power of sports means to him. today really good thanks for uh the invitation it's good to be here yeah absolutely i'm excited to talk to you and i know you're very busy and i wanted to dive right in and start as i always do by asking you about your own experiences in sports how did you get to be involved in this work that you're doing now yeah so probably like a lot of your guests in fact i know like a lot of your guests i grew up playing sports i love football and lacrosse and basketball I grew up a little bit north of Baltimore, where lacrosse was very popular, and mm -hmm. that was a sport that I gravitated to. So by high school, I was just playing that. And by just a sort of weird, quirky sort of fate thing, I ended up at a high school called Loyola High School at the time. Now it's called Loyola Blakefield, probably because it sounds a lot fancier than it really <laughs> was and is. But Loyola at the time was really the best high school lacrosse program in the country. Um, uh -huh. That's not an exaggeration. So my junior and senior seasons, the team that I was on, you notice how I'm carefully describing my, my role in it. The team that I was on won the national championship both of those seasons. You're kidding. So I wow. felt very, very fortunate to be in that environment. And so I loved playing all sorts of youth sports. And I think I had a great experience. It was my high school experience that really played even a bigger role, had a bigger impact on my life. I had an incredible coach who, a man by the name of Joe McFadden, who coached there for many years after I left and had a huge amount of success. He was the person I like to say was really the first maybe male adult in my life that treated me like an adult. At 16 or 17 years old, his expectations of me and the team were that we behave like adults. He spoke to us as adults. And again, you know, close to 35 plus years later, whatever it is, I still think about it. It's very vivid in my mind, the importance of that relationship and how Coach McFadden treated us. And that guided me to Gettysburg College, where I also played lacrosse. And again, in a very strange, sort of quirky thing to have happened, um, I was recruited by a coach to go there. It was a middle of the road program at the time. That was fine with me. I had just decided that I was going to use lacrosse to just get into the best academic school I could get into, and I didn't really care about the quality of the lacrosse program. 
And literally the day before I was going to be on campus, Aaron, I got a letter in the mail. Can you believe that? This is like 1987 when you got stuff in the mail from colleges. And it was a letter from the athletic director saying that there had been a change in the coaching staff and new coach was a coach, a young coach at the time. He's probably 28 years old. He had been the head coach at Salisbury University and at Colgate University named Hank Janzik. And so my first day was Coach Janzik's first day. And just to tell you how my time with him went, he retired just two seasons ago, and he's the second winningest college lacrosse coach in history. And so- Wow. Uh, Imagine that my time in those four years was dramatically different than what I anticipated it being. Over the time I was there, I just witnessed this transformation. I was on the first two teams in that program to go to the NCAA. Mm -hmm. I was on the first team when I was a senior to be ranked number one in the country for about five minutes. Uh, So they were just having a front seat and being part of that transformation, again, had a huge impact on the rest of my life. And I actually thought I was going to be a college coach. Uh-huh. I there, I actually coached as, a, as an assistant for three seasons at Michigan State, which was then a Division I program, has since dissolved the program, dissolved the program about 10 years after I left. Ironically, the Big Ten right now is the strongest conference yes. in college lacrosse. When I was coaching there, not not so much. But sports have played a huge part in my life. And when I stepped away, obviously when I was done playing, and then after three seasons coaching, I decided that coaching was not going to be the career for me. And I entered into sports marketing and went to work for a number of sports um, agencies. And that was the beginning of my career. And I've always been involved in some capacity in sports for my entire life. Yes. And your marketing work, I believe you had your own agency for a while before you started the work you're doing now on NILs. Is that right? That's right. When I was, I think, 27 years old, I'd already worked at a couple of different sports agencies in New York. Through some mutual friends, I met a guy by the name of Brett Smith, who's still a friend of mine today. And he and I developed a sports agency in the mid-1990s that focused entirely on action sports. And so depending on the age of the listeners to this podcast, the mid 1990s were the time where sports like surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, BMX, biking, freestyle motocross, not only gained huge popularity in terms of participation, but they became of sort of a foundational element of a lot of youth marketing. And yes. we built an agency that was really focused on helping those brands reach teens and young adults through action sports. And the third partner named Issa Salabini, who now owns the business, the three of us owned and operated that company for a little over 20 years. And at the end of 2019, Brett and I sold our portion to our third partner, Issa, who is still running it today. Oh, interesting. And tell me a little bit about that work that you did in sports marketing. Is there a particular brand or something you work with that you would like to highlight? So probably the most notable, first of all, I'll say this. We were extremely fortunate as often entrepreneurs are where 
we may have had an inkling or two of a good idea, but we, the things that we didn't control ended up being tremendous wind at our back. Mm -hmm. And the timing was very fortunate in that we had created the business and within about a year and a half, ESPN launched the X Games. And oh, when wow. X Games were launched, that created a lot of interest by really big sports sponsors to spend money in the space and they needed assistance in helping them negotiate a sponsorship, activate a sponsorship, find athletes to work with, activate those athletes, all sorts of those things. And because we had been in business for what seemed like five minutes, but it was about a year and a half, we were just out front enough to win a lot of that business. And so there was this period where one day we were only working for the Mountain Dew brand of Pepsi. We played a big role in their Do the Dew campaign. Sure, uh, which I remember that. Running yeah. today. And uh, one day we were just working for Mountain Dew. And then after the X Games hit, within three months, we were working for Pepsi, Motorola, Ford, Gillette. And I'm probably leaving one out. And we were like 15 guys in a tiny office in Burlington, Vermont. In a lot of ways, we had no business doing any of that work, but we were just at the right place at the right time. I'm sure there was more to it than that, but I do appreciate your humility. And so then in 2019, you say that you moved on from that work to focus primarily on NILs, which again, seems like very great timing, I would think, to make that move. And I think you call yourself an NIL advocate. Is that right? But not an activist? The word I use most of the time is analyst. Analyst, excuse me. Okay. And sure, I, I advocate for the rights of student athletes for sure. And I think that at this point, that's really a no brainer. But the distinction that I make, Aaron, is that I feel like there are a lot of NIL advocates. Sure. I'm not sure the marketplace is served by a hundred percent of people singing in unison that NIL is good for every brand, every student athlete, every athletic department, and all parts of the ecosystem. I think certainly the rights to earn income, to promote your own name, image, and likeness is deserved and long overdue for athletes. But I like to call myself an NIL analyst in the sense that I'm a lot more interested in the facts and the data and serving those to various parts of the NIL ecosystem, mm -hmm. media, student athletes, parents, universities, coaches, so that they can decide for themselves the way they want to learn about NIL, the way they want to operate in it, what they want to build, how they want to participate or not. So that's been my lane, if you will. Yeah. Okay. And so the, I know that you teach about NIL at the University of Vermont. But you also have a poll that you do of student athletes and others involved in the ecosystem, which then collects data on it, which I gather is part of how you're able to analyze this ecosystem. And so I'm curious if we could start with this question about the popularity of college sports, because I think, as you know well, the theory behind some criticism of NIL is that the amateurism of college sports would wither if NILs were allowed. And... You just haven't found that to be the case in your polling. Yeah, that's true. I guess you're hitting on two sort of maybe key elements right mm -hmm. off the bat. One is that there's really 
I hardly use this word, but there's no evidence. There's really no evidence that the college sport fan, either in totality or even broken down sport by sport, cares less about college sports because they don't see because they see their student athletes participating as something different than the amateurs that they once were. There's just no evidence of it. There's no evidence in TV viewership. There's no evidence on live streaming or the consumption of college sports content on The Athletic or ESPN or on 3.com. Whatever metric you want to use, there's just no evidence that fans are turned off by the development of NIL. And then the other thing, Eric, that you're making me think of, because you use the word amateur, yes, is that there was a time where being an amateur athlete meant something very specific, right or wrong. The way we defined amateurism was that the participant, the athlete, could earn no income through any means associated with her or his sport, right? And so what NIL has done has changed what it means to be an amateur. And so what it really means now, the new definition means that you cannot earn compensation on the field, otherwise known as the term pay for play. Right. You cannot earn compensation on the field, but off the field associated, and I use this term loosely, Associated with the term fame, you can use your relative fame to promote products, open a camp or a clinic, or do private instruction, do appearances, sign autographs, all sorts of NIL activities are within your rights. You can earn income. So it's off the field versus on the field. That's really the new way, I think, to think about amateurism and fans yeah. have a problem with that. Yeah. They're not really thinking about when they're watching a ball go through a bucket or a touchdown being scored. They're just thinking about whatever they're thinking about when they're watching those things to be escape from their reality or whatnot, or just their favorite team and the camaraderie that it brings to their lives. And like you, I've been advocating for college athletes to have this right given back to them because it was abrogated for many years. But what's really interesting to me, Bill, is that when I first started doing research for a book I wrote on women's college basketball, it seems strange to me that there were these very successful women that I followed in the research who were not being compensated for their NILs being used by the universities for which they were playing, and at least not directly, right? They were getting scholarships to play, and I suppose it was indirectly part of that deal. But it seemed like they were generating a lot of attention, if not outright wealth, for these universities but not being paid directly for their participation on, let's say, a billboard or promotional web video. And that version of NIL is obviously different than what's legal in the marketplace today. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that distinction between names, images, and likenesses being paid for by a third-party brand, and then names, images, and likenesses being paid for by University of Alabama, that their football players were putting them on a billboard in Tuscaloosa. So, Aaron, you're bringing up this. By the way, what a great, I just have to say, what a great month for you. Somebody's written a book on women's college basketball and the month that women's college basketball has had. Incredible. Yeah, Incredible. It's, a good, it's a good time to, to watch it, but it's always been a good time to watch it. I think I was just maybe a man before my time. 
<laughs> can, can that book be republished like yeah, on exactly. the spot right now? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, thank you, though, Bill. So to your question, I think that it speaks to very important continued myth about NIL. So let's pull back and we'll pretend to be lawyers for a second. One, the first thing is NIL is not new as a concept. Take it away from college sports for just a moment. It's not a new concept. The right to own and earn income related to your own name, image, or likeness is a hundred-year-old legal concept. Everybody in this country granted through rights provided by the states that we live in, we're all granted that. And as you referenced a couple of minutes ago, the NCAA essentially stepped in and thwarted that, impeded that right in terms of what it would allow student athletes in their membership to do, okay? And so when people say that some sort of right has been given to student athletes, that's not an accurate representation. They weren't given anything. Essentially, what was removed from the equation was the challenge that was put in place by the NCAA. So that leads to the second part of your question and your thought process, which is, so now who's paying the student athletes? And again, and I'm not here to pick on the NCAA, that's easy, low-hanging fruit, not all terribly that interesting, but I will say that they got away with one in this sense too. They didn't actually have to do anything because they said, okay, now we will stop impeding the rights of student athletes. They are free to go out into the marketplace. And if they want to do NIL deals and earn compensation through various activities, they can, but it will be paid by a third party. So if the university then uses the name, image, or likeness in a promotional video on a billboard to sell tickets, that student athlete continues not to be paid. Right. Right earn any compensation for the university to use the name image likeness of a local brand. Everybody loves to use the example of the car dealership. I promise I'm only going to use it one time now. If the local car dealership were to create a promotional video or use a billboard or whatever to drive traffic to the to their lot, of course they would have to pay a compensate the student athlete. Again, the NCAA has not really given up a lot and has moved the compensation conversation away from themselves and into the hands of third parties. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I think that the NCAA, of course, is made up of universities with these big time programs. That's really the focus of our conversation anyway, not that division two or division three schools, although they often do also use student athletes, the names, images, and likenesses in their promotions of the university. But the big time schools are obviously making money off of these athletes still, and the athletes are still not being compensated for it directly. But as you say, the NCAA has gotten away with one in the sense that these third parties are paying the most prominent athletes for their NILs. And that's maybe tamped down a little bit of the criticism of the NCAA as far as these athletes being exploited. And so, um, you know, you recently wrote in an article entitled Brands Should Capitalize on NIL Despite the Legal Landscape, which was initially published in the Sports Business Journal. 
that there's been, quote, no data that shows a decline in the fandom of college sports due to NIL. And we talked about that earlier, that fans are not really thinking much about these issues when they're watching games. But I wonder, are there other reasons that you think that college sports fan avidity is still so strong, even in this new era that we're in? Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe, and I don't draw this connection all that often, but sometimes I do think about my prior part of my career when I was heavily involved in action sports. Yes. And I think about the capacity that fans have, the interest that sports fans have for specific sports or specific athletes. And one example I think about often is I was doing that previously discussed work in the, in really during the rise of Tony Hawk's fame. At one point in this country, and I don't know what the participation numbers are today, but at one point in this country, there were more skateboarders, a little over 10 million than there were little league baseball players. Now think about that for a moment. That's amazing. That, that's an enormous number. Wow. But there was really only one household name and that was Tony Hawk. Now the skating community for sure knew 50 to 75 other pros that made a living in skateboarding through sponsorship and contests. But in terms of the general fan, they knew one name and it was Tony Hawk. And I felt, I always felt like that that's what the public consciousness could, could take in a sport like that, a niche sport, they could only get their head around and accept and have one face of the game, face of the sport. I think about that sometimes when I think about what we'll call niche sports. So basically anything other than maybe basketball, field hockey or tennis or volleyball or lacrosse, those sports in college have rabid fan bases, rabid fan bases. Now, if you're not in that fan base, you wouldn't know it. You don't necessarily tune it out. You just don't know that it exists. But again, I'll go back to lacrosse because it's a sport I know a lot of detail around. This past Friday night, when the Big Ten Network showed the Ohio State-Maryland game, and both of those teams are in the top 10, I am guessing that a very large percentage of college lacrosse fans watched that game. An enormous percentage. That happens all across the country in all kinds of sports. I think particularly volleyball, the volleyball fan base is really just crazy about their sport. Softball, the same way. I think that those fans just love their sport and they're going to consume it no matter what. It, NIL has really no impact in the way they see the sport. And in the sports like football and women's and men's basketball, I just think there's like obviously a much larger percentage of the population consumes those sports and they know they're watching the highest level of the sport being played and there's passion and love for college sports. And again, I just don't think they care all that much. They're not thinking of it in the moment, it being NIL. And also not about amateurism or in any sense, whether it's old definition of it or the one you mentioned earlier. And so how did we get here? You mentioned the decision in the case of Alston, NCAA versus Alston in your Sports Business Journal article. What was that ruling and what changed in this space as a result? 
It's interesting because the Austin case was not about NIL. The importance of the Austin case was that it indicated that the Supreme Court believes, and I say that not in past tense, believes currently that the NCAA oversteps its bounds in a number of issues, including its role in providing opportunities for student athletes and putting too many restrictions on them. And so it was an indication to the NCAA that NIL was coming and that they were going to lose, frankly, when it got to the, when that case eventually got to the Supreme Court in whatever format it was going to be, they were going to lose that too. And within a couple of days, the NCAA basically scrapped the plans. And I never saw them, very few people have, but apparently scrapped the plans that they had been working on related to NIL, quickly put out a two and a half page skeleton guide to what their policy was going to be, and then allowed NIL to occur. And as you mentioned earlier, it lets them off the hook in some sense, because they're still not requiring their member universities to pay for athletes' NILs, uh, however they're being used by the universities. And I'm curious, is it your perspective, or is it right for me to assume that your perspective is that this current state of affairs that we have with states drafting unique NIL laws rather than a centralized federal NIL law, is this a more desirable way for brands? Is that a perspective that is fair to say, or I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting, I have not been asked that in the way that you just asked, and it's forcing me to think about it in a different way. I think my answer is that it states drafting NIL laws, and most of them have, not all, but most states have put an NIL, NIL law into place, and many of them are now going back and amending those laws for a bunch of other reasons. I won't get into it at the moment, but what that does for brands and potentially student athletes in the short term is create more confusion. So I'll stick with the brands because that's what you asked about. So if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 brand and you have a national footprint, you sell product all over the country, and let's say you even have retail stores or franchises or something. Lucky for you, there's a major Division I university within 50 miles of 30 or 100 of these franchises or retail locations. So, wow, wouldn't, the, wouldn't using student-athletes be a fantastic tactic in generating interest in promoting your product? Absolutely. But let's say those 30 locations happen to be in 20 different states. What this forces brands to do is work with agencies or consultants like me and sometimes lawyers to go through, identify, does the state law have any restriction that could impede our progress? Because as a, brand, as a Fortune 500 brand, you're trying to create one plan and implement it everywhere. You're not trying to create 30 or 15 of or course. 50. Very inefficient um, to do it that way. Not highly inefficient. And not to mention, even outside of the state wall, Aaron, every institution already has their own policy. So you'll have to take a peek at that because not that St. Mary's is going to be a whole lot different than Long Beach State, but there could be something in there that's different, right? 
Sure. And so you're already forced to do that. So the fact that each and every state has a little bit of a different thing going on, not super convenient for the brand. It's a little bit of an impediment for them in terms of, of activating a national program. But that's the short term. The long, but the long term is fine. You do, you, you do it once, the brand figures it out, they implement a program that's going to last two or three years anyway, or they redo a program every year. They, get, they become more efficient at it. What scares me about a national program, rather federal legislation, is that federal legislation tends to be about restrictions. By the way, is it, does it surprise anybody that the NCAA would be in support of federal legislation? One, it further sort of uh, insulates them. But two, because you do that sort of thing when you want to place more restrictions on a population, on a class, in this case, student athletes. So while I can't point to a very specific restriction that will occur that will impact a brand's ability to do a deal with a student athlete, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like that's the right direction. And if something eventually passes, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but if, some, if federal legislation eventually passes, my guess is it will be full of restrictions that today's current student-athletes do not have. On the very off chance that there's a federal legislator, lawmaker, policy, lobbyist, whatever you might say, that's listening to this podcast, what would you say ought to be in that federal law if it were to be drafted? I think there is something to be said for addressing issues that would level the playing field. So I'll give you an example. It's not, again, it's a little bit theoretical. I can't, it's hard to get into the granular and use examples because like we don't know what's actually going to occur. But it does, but I think we can probably, most reasonable people can agree that if we treat student athletes in the state of Florida with certain rights, the same stipulations, restrictions, or lack of restrictions ought to be in place in Louisiana and Mississippi and Texas. Sure. Why would we do anything different? And so what's but what is happening a little bit at the state level is that the state lawmakers are jockeying for position to enable their state university, otherwise known as their football team have a little bit of an advantage over the neighboring state and the neighboring state university and the neighboring football team, who is their primary competitor. So that doesn't feel right. And so if federal legislation could take away some of that behind the scenes jockeying, I think that would be positive. I think it could also be positive to probably get some of the issues around booster collectives under control. And by the way, again, as an analyst, I don't have a problem with it. These are private citizens. They're allowed to do what they want to do as long as they're following the rules that the NCAA has set up in terms of booster involvement in these institutions. But I think it would be better for everybody if there was a level playing field again in how boosters were able to operate. So for instance, if, and I'm making up the states, if I won't even use a real one, if in state 
a booster can set up a collective as a nonprofit and somehow take advantage of tax benefits through the fact that they are operating a nonprofit, where in another state, a collective cannot be a nonprofit, that, that's, that's not an even playing field. And we sure. ought to have an even playing field even at the booster level. And so something like that theoretically could be put into a federal law that ensures that all collectives are nonprofits, let's say, or something like that. You think that might be helpful to create a bit more of a level playing field? Yeah, or, and I think you picking up where you just left off, if not that they had to be a nonprofit, that they couldn't take advantage of tax advantages based on the fact that they were a nonprofit involved in NIL. In other words, NIL really should not be the environment to produce your tax burden, right? That makes good sense. And there's recently been, uh, hearings in Congress about NIL and the new NCAA president, Charlie Baker, was quoted afterwards lamenting uh, the, quote, exploitation of athletes by bad actors and the lack of transparency in today's market. And I'm curious, as someone working in this space, what advice would you give to somebody like NCAA President Baker, I, knowing that he's relatively new to this job? Okay. The way that I see the first two years of NIL is actually not all that dissimilar from other ventures that I've been in, in my past in terms of an emerging marketplace or an emerging ecosystem. Okay. And I wrote recently, and sure enough, I got some flack for it, which probably means I was right to have jotted it down, <laughs> that the way I see NIL is that about 60% of the actors or businesses Entities in the ecosystem, about 60% are really truly contributing to the development of the marketplace and ecosystem. In other words, they're actually good actors. They're entrepreneurs, they're attorneys, they're financial advisors, all sorts of people actually contributing. I think about 20% are organizations or businesses that are not contributing but they're not doing any harm. When I say they're not contributing, they're just cats and, and they're doing the same thing that three other businesses are actually doing a little bit better. And I say they're not contributing and I know that sounds a little harsh, sorry, but they're not contributing because they're not doing it better, faster, cheaper, all the things that we need in a marketplace to improve it. And so the final 20%, Aaron, I think are what somebody would call, I don't call them this, but bad actors people that are really only involved in NIL because they think there's a financial gain and they're swooping in to capitalize. By the way, I have no problem, as you can probably guess from my past, I am very pro-entrepreneurship. I have no problem with businesses being created. This should not be an altruistic exercise. There's a space for that. And we need those individuals working at universities and in many other places to support student-athletes. But I have no problem with, the, with businesses being created in the ecosystem. I think there are rep, a, a small-ish but visible group of entities that I think are not contributing and not necessarily benign. And they're making headlines, right? 
Yeah, and, sure. and this is this brings me to a question I had as well about this notion of headline risk, which I read about when I was doing preparations for this podcast, reading your work. This is terminology that caught my eye, and it seems like it's maybe potentially keeping some brands out of this space. Is that correct? So I don't necessarily believe that's the case, Okay, that brands are staying out. I think that brands have, um, some brands have remained on the sidelines because it just seems a little too chaotic. And let's rewind the clock for a second. I, as I like joke to people sometimes, for over 20 years when I was doing professional athlete marketing, never once ever did I hear a brand say, gosh, you know what? There just aren't enough professional athletes to choose from. I think I'll wait. I think I'll hold tight. There were 10,000 professional athletes, literally 10,000 professional athletes prior to college athletics and IL. So now a flood of 190,000 division one student athletes came into the market, 550,000 if you include all divisions. So there's a lot of Brands are not under significant pressure to act right away because there's all kinds of assets to choose from. It's a little bit chaotic. They can stand back and maybe let some other brands go first and see how that's going to work out and maybe understand some best practices. I don't think there's a lot of headline risk. I think that there are some risks, and I say this to brand clients of mine, The biggest risk they face is by trying to maybe have it both ways, to utilize the potential influence of college student athletes, particularly when NIL, when the buzz of NIL is very intense, but at the same time, not compensate them properly. And by the way, we've seen some of this, right? Very early in NIL, there were some big brands that came out and made these wild claims about how many athletes they were going to sponsor. And then when you looked closely, you saw that wasn't the case. That's not, they're not really being compensated. And I don't mind, I'll name a name right now. I think Adidas did a very poor job. They came out, there were press releases and headlines about how they were going to sponsor, quote, Every Division One athlete at an Adidas-sponsored school. And what does that mean? For most of us, it meant that they were going to pay those student-athletes. Of course, we knew that couldn't possibly be true. They're not going to pay 50,000 student-athletes. So what we found by digging a little bit deeper, or it just seeped out over time, was that they were going to provide a coupon code to all of those student-athletes that went to an Adidas-sponsored school And if you were a track and field athlete, let's say, and at one of those schools, you could take that coupon code, put it on your social media. And if somebody used it to buy a pair of sneakers, you would get a commission. That's not really the intention of NIL. That's pretty disingenuous, isn't it? So there was, again, listen, I'm not, Adidas is not a client of mine. I'm not picking on them. They weren't the only ones. And in their defense, I will tell you, They had another part, and I think they still do have another part of their NIL program, which is very traditional and effective in nature, which is, I don't know if it's roughly 20 or so athletes, high level, that are being paid probably significant 
sums of money and activated as professional athletes used across a number of areas within the Adidas marketing machine. And they, it wasn't all about the coupon code, but to me, going back to your question of the risk in the headlines, well, if you're Adidas, there wasn't risk in the fact that you signed up to do NIL. There was risk in the fact that you signed it up to do it in that way that seemed disingenuous. Makes, makes sense. And, and there's this, I read in your work that, you know, actually, let me, let me switch gears and just ask this more broader question about why would a brand want a college athlete to be on their team rather than a pro athlete? There should certainly have to be pros and cons to using each, right? Yeah. Uh, gosh, how do I want to answer that? So I think that, I think that the first thing I'd say about using a college athlete is that there's a certain kind of passion around college sports that does not exist in pro sports in anything, but maybe in soccer or something, you sure. have to maybe make the connection that's actually closer to, to college, the passion in American college sports. But there's a college, there's a passion there that doesn't exist in the pros. There's also connectivity you get to the students that are at those institutions that don't play sports, just the general student sure. body. Because when you hire a student athlete to be a brand advocate and they're communicating to the students on their campus, it's the, it's, if you believe in influencer marketing, then you should probably believe in NIL, right? Because it is, it truly is a peer speaking to their peers on their own campus. One of the right. most visible peers because they're a student athlete, but speaking to the peers on their campus. So that depending on what your product or service is, the brand can just assess that a student athlete is just better at this kind of advocacy than a pro athlete might be. Sure. If you're trying to sell something that's your target demographic is 18 to 22 year olds or thereabout, that would make a lot yes. of sense. Okay. And, uh, and so what do you find in your work in this area, Bill, as far as those non-student athletes, uh, sort of regular students and how they're receiving that influencer marketing from other college athletes? Have you been able to get any data on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I do have a little data on that. I, the Keeping it at a high level, I'll sure. say, if you do research on the general, and here's what I'm going to compare, college student athletes in NIL compared to Influ general influencer marketing, right? So if you look at the data around just effective, but general influencer marketing for those who are listening right now, I'll use the example. If there's a, if you're selling a fashion brand or makeup or something that an influencer that you hire off of YouTube or Instagram is somebody with credibility speaking to fashion or health and beauty products, right? And he or she may be somebody with a giant following of 500,000 or more, or a relatively small following of 10,000 fans, but that he or she has real influence uh, on whether that product is purchased. And so we think somebody's an effective social media influencer when they get to around 3% engagement of their audience. Mm -hmm. If they only have 10,000 fans or followers, they're probably going to do much better than that. But when you get into the 100,000 plus 
social media influencers, if they get to 3%, a brand is really willing to pay for that because they think that social media influencer is really effective and will move the needle on those products. But in the NIL space, what we see, and I've collected data on this, and there have been other entities that have done this as well, we see that most student athletes are doing five, six, eight percent engagement. Okay. Now, in fairness, that's really fascinating. Yeah. So they're doing better as social media influencers than social media influencers are doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, though, again, as much as possible, you want to be comparing apples to apples. Sure. And a lot of the so the sort of professional social media influencers, they make their living by building large communities, a hundred thousand plus followers, and their engagement rates are going to fall off. Bigger their audience is, and most student athletes, and I'm talking not necessarily football player at Alabama, Bryce Young, who might have a half a million followers. I'm certainly not talking about Livy Dunn, gymnast for LSU. They have very large social media followings. Most student athletes are what we would call micro-influencers, right? So they could have less than 20,000 or less than 10,000, but still their engagement rates are so good that they're really able to move the needle with the brands that hire them to post social content. That's really fascinating. When, I know you, you, you mentioned you wanted to compare apples to apples, but what would you say are maybe some of the reasons why the, the athletes are doing this influencing have a greater rate of return on, in terms of fan engagement? I guess one thing, and I guess it's part of my not very, nothing I'm going to say here is going to be overly novel. It comes back to authenticity, right? If, if a social media influencer is hired to talk about a health and beauty brand, we know why they're talking about it. Now, they're following the rules, I hope, and they're telling us that it's a paid endorsement. But on top of and so that comes into play. But what also comes into play is we know that is what this person does for a living. And you compare that to a student athlete we know it's not what they do for a living. We know what they do for a living because they're on the same campus as us, right. going to the same classes. And so we know they go to that class. We know where they eat lunch. We know that they go to practice at four o'clock. We also see them on Saturdays. They're, they're on the field, we're in the stands. There's an authenticity to that that I think accounts for that gap between 3% and 6%. That's so fascinating because that suggests the educational aspect, or at least the being on campus aspect is integral to these athletes being able to monetize their NIL. And actually you're making me think of an amazing study that somebody should do in the next five years, which is to look at the engagement rates and the success of the college student athlete today and see what happens when some of these athletes get to the WNBA or NBA or play in the NFL, my guess is they'll certainly continue to build their following over time, but their engagement rates will drop off pretty dramatically. Yeah, that would be a very interesting longitudinal study, wouldn't it? And so we talked about amateurism and uh, there's also these recruiting concerns that some people have. If athletes are profiting from these NILs, does it create an unfair recruiting advantage for some schools? as concerned about that because I think that's been the case for 
50, 60, 70 years anyway. I think you're going to have these concerns. You, I think you also found in your research that there's not as much tension in the locker room within these teams that maybe people had feared. So I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about that study that you did. So I wish that I had the full list in front of me, which I didn't, but there were these sort of speaking points. When I say list, they really mean speaking points. There were these three or four speaking points. And if you look back in the history of what the NCAA would talk about, and when I say NCAA, I shouldn't even single them out. The NCAA, coaches, ADs, anybody who didn't want or didn't believe, and let's be fair to them, they didn't believe it was good for college sports. Even if they couldn't explain why exactly, they didn't believe that NIL was good for college sports. And one of the arguments that was made, it was in every interview, anytime anybody ever got to say it was, it's going to cause damage in the locker room. It's going to create jealousy. Aaron is going to be able to get a big NIL deal because he's a better player, because he's more visible, he's gregarious, all these things. And look at Bill over there. He's not getting any of that. Maybe he's a little less of a player or he's, or he's just not as good in front of the camera, whatever the reason is, but there's going to be jealousy. It isn't the locker room, so the argument would go, isn't the locker room one of the last places of this tight-knit community Everybody's equal and there's a brotherhood or sisterhood in place. And we're going to damage that. Why would we damage that? And so what I was really interested in, and it's a big, it's a big part of why I do my NIL research poll, is that I'm actually a lot less interested in collecting financial data, the size of deals, because there are a lot of other sources for that. And frankly, probably they're better equipped to get a lot of that information. But I'm interested in the NIL experience. I actually mostly want to know why one student athlete is having a really good experience. Another student athlete's just not even interested. And among the things I'm interested in observing through survey data is what is happening in the locker room. And there's no question about two things that come back to me. Number one is that student athletes today have no problem communicating with one another about NIL. They're not afraid to talk about it. They do talk about it with each other in the locker room. Number two, there's no jealousy that this, that the concept was something that sort of the adults made up and placed on the student athletes and said, oh, this is the way they're going to feel. It's not the way they feel. And when you ask student athletes about, is it discussed in the locker room? 90% of them will, roughly 90% will say, yeah, it's openly discussed. Or has it caused a problem? Less than 10% of student athletes say there's ever been a problem in their locker room or among the team on something that was NIL related. So it's just not an issue. It's so fascinating. I remember reading those things, Phil, when they were coming out about athletic directors and conference commissioners, and they'll say, this is going to damage college sports. And I just thought they just didn't want change. They just feared the change. And they, and particularly in terms of the power dynamic, because when college athletes are paid more or closer to what they're actually producing in proportion to what they're producing, I should say, then they don't put up with the coaches, whatever antics, let's call them generously, right? 
And, and of course, with the transfer portal opening up around the same time, athletes can switch to other schools. It changes the power dynamic between coaches and players. I think overall, that's a good thing. Right? It limits the ability for there to be abuse, any kind, verbal, physical, what have you. And so that seems like we moved in the right direction to me, but, uh, but I'm, I'm we're coming up to the end of the hour here, Bill, and I don't want to keep you too long. So I'm curious, I'll ask you two more questions. First is, what do you think the future holds in this space, in the NIL space? So can I wrap in something that you just referenced and maybe I'll think? Please, so you mentioned the transfer portal and, and obviously that's a hot topic. So I'll just remind the listeners who got this far into the podcast, maybe be interested in this. While there's a lot of talk, just like there was a lot of talk about, quote, the NCAA giving student-athlete NIL rights, that did not happen. There's also this idea that the transfer portal is was always connected to NIL, which it wasn't. The transfer portal right. was in place well before NIL. But here's the thing that is a myth that I'd love for at least a small community of people to understand, which is that the transfer portal and the ability to transfer is something that's allowed to all college students, let me repeat that, all college students are allowed to transfer. The transfer portal is simply essentially a piece of software that allows more management and understanding of a student athlete transferring versus somebody in the general student population. One other thing I'll mention, there's no question that the transfer portal has made it easily, you know, less friction involved for a student athlete to transfer. Every year in this country, between 30 and 35% of college students transfer. Most people don't realize that. 30 to 35% of college students in this country transfer. We're nowhere near that number in the transfer portal for student athletes. Nor do I think we, hopefully we never get there. But the notion that the transfer portal is wildly out of, out of whack because 10, 12, 15% of student athletes may transfer. What, to me, it's not completely out of control or I'm not even sure that I would qualify it that way. College students transfer. It's fine. Sure. We should let them transfer. Of course. Uh, I think that the trans the future Maybe more quickly, I'll answer this part. I think the future is that we're a long way from NIL and related issues being settled, right? Yeah. And settled legally and settled in the commonplace way to use that term. I think it's likely that there will be lawsuits and other, and there already are some lawsuits and other action that's taken to address revenue sharing particularly at the football and college and men's and women's basketball. And I hate to segment off those sports. I don't think it's great for college sports to do that, to treat those populations, those athletes differently, but we may end up needing to do that. But I think we're going to have to address revenue sharing, which would be then the first thing that the institutions and the NCAA actually had to give up. And I think we're absolutely going to address this notion at some point of whether student athletes are employees of the university. And I know that's very difficult for people to accept. It doesn't sound great. 
it comes with a lot of baggage. I'm not saying it's right or wrong and what I agree with, but I think it's coming as in that debate is going to get really serious and it's going to stay a debate until it gets settled probably in the next five years. Yeah. Yeah. I, c- I couldn't agree more. I think that really is something that's been kicked down the road too far. I started writing my book in the early 2010s or 20 teens, whatever it's called. And one of the chapters is about how professional the athletes I followed are and how their work is work. And you might call it playing a sport. They're really working their sport at the college level and it's a job for them. And they have fun doing it, but a lot of people have fun doing their jobs. So <laughs> they still get paid. So anyway, Bill, I really appreciate you taking time today again. And I always like to wrap up the show by giving my guests an opportunity to just reflect for themselves on what the power of sports is to them. I'm wondering what you might say to that question. Oh, I think that the power of sports to me, there's so many sort of variations of this. It's what you want it to be. To To some people, it's just purely disconnecting from their daily lives and watching a a great football game at 3.30 on CBS, Mm -hmm. just like not thinking about the week. For some, it's the participation. For some, it's working in the business. I, I, I actually just can't imagine not being connected to sports at a lot of levels from my own life, from a career perspective or volunteering youth teams, things like that. It's just, it's a powerful place to be and something I'd never want to live without. I love that, Bill. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you being a guest on my show. It's been a lot of fun to to get to know you and learn from you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Aaron. I really appreciate it. This was great. And I hope we stay in touch. It's been a lot of fun. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. That'll do it for today's show. My thanks again to Bill Carter for coming on the show. I know I learned a lot from him, and I hope you did as well. I hope you all have a